have you had a busy week in the left fin market, not had time to catch up with the latest trends? Well, welcome to Cloud9Fin, where we bring you the need-to-know information on documentation, ESG, and we deep dive into the themes showing up in the high-yield, leveraged loans, and restructuring spaces. I'm Kat Hidalgo, a reporter at 9Fin, and I'll be your host for today, when we'll be talking about the sustainability core premium, Pursubio's ESG concerns, and the upcoming pipeline, with a little bit of bonus info at the end. But first, the wrap-up of this week's market deals. After a heavy week of new high-yield issuance, which saw the likes of Smurfit Kappa and Diversity Price, only Selenis is still left in the market. Also featuring in loans is Selenis, however Dexco is the biggest in the market, followed by Paysafe, BMC, Polygon, Howden and Stada. Next up, we have the Covenant Close-Up with Caitlin Carey. Thank you so much for being with us today, Caitlin. Thank you for having me, Kat. Caitlin is one of our senior legal analysts, and today we're going to be talking about something that's actually missing this time in the Covenants, and that's the coupon step-up. Um, we've seen this in Atelium, uh, so tell us what, what's going on here. Yeah, so um, essentially, Kat, what happened is on Monday, um, a, a sustainability-linked bond was launched to finance Sterling Square's acquisition of Italium, which is an Italian waste management company. Um, and previously in high yields, whenever we've seen a sustainability-linked bond, the sustainability linkage has come through a coupon step-up. Essentially, the issuer has to pay a higher coupon if they don't meet their sustainability performance targets. Uh, but what... Italium has is a little bit different. They don't have a coupon step up, so the company is going to pay the same coupon over the life of the bond. What they have instead is a redemption premium step up. So when the company goes to redeem the bonds under the call schedule, um, under the make whole redemption, or if they redeem the bonds at maturity, they uh, will have to pay um, a redemption premium step up if they don't meet their sustainability performance tar- tar- targets. And that's either a 30 basis point step up if one of the targets isn't met, or a 60 basis point step up if neither target is met. Um, so essentially it's you know just at the time of redemption, they would have to pay whatever premium would typically be you know, required. So for instance, under the call schedule, usually they have to pay par plus half coupon um, after the call period expires. Um, and then that steps down to call plus a quarter of the coupon. And instead it would be more like call, or sorry, par plus 50% coupon plus that 30 or 60 basis points um, as, as the call price. Um, and, and so that's essentially how, how the provision works. Interesting, interesting. Um, so we'll leave, you know, kind of claims of greenwashing to other people in the market. <laughs> but from a totally mechanical legal perspective, what are your criticisms? As compared to, you know, when they have a coupon step up, the company would have to pay the premium on the full outstanding amount of the bonds sort of every time, you know, they have a coupon payment date. So, you know, semi-annually or or whatever, um, if they don't meet their targets. Um, Instead, with this redemption premium step up, you know, the company has control over when they choose to redeem the bonds. Um, So, I mean, they could potentially just blow past all of their sort of interim targets. And as long as they 
end up complying with their targets by the time they, they redeem, you know, three or four years down the line, there's no negative financial consequences um, in, in interim. Um, and then also, you know, they only have to pay the premium essentially once uh, per principal amount of, of the bonds. So, you know, they would only have to pay the principal on, uh, sorry, the, the premium on the particular principal amount that's being redeemed rather than on the whole outstanding principal amount of the bonds. So even though 30 or 60 basis points is a bigger penalty than a lot of the coupon step-ups we've seen, that has to be balanced by the fact that they only have to pay it once and they can sort of, you know, potentially, you know, defer it and defer it by waiting later to redeem. Um, and that makes the penalty potentially weaker. It's important to note here that in addition to everything Caitlin is saying, the issuer could also avoid paying the premium altogether uh, by using the equity claw um, and or 10% at 103 features by buying up uh, bonds at open market prices or undertaking a tender offer below the specified redemption price. Italium has now priced its 450 million euros worth of senior secured notes to pay 4.625% at par. Next up, we have Please Raise Responsibly, our ESG section. I'm here today with Alex, one of our credit analysts who looks after loans and also covers a bit of sustainability too. Big, big name in, in the pun space here at Ninefin. I try. <laughs> um, so yeah, today on to more serious topics. Give us an idea of what's going on in the Leffin market right now from a sustainability perspective. Sure. So as the market heats up after summer, plenty of uh, sustainable debt to choose from, both across high yield and um, in leveraged loans. So starting with high yield, um, again, we really, um, before August, we cracked that uh, 20 billion euros in uh, issuance year to date, that barrier. And we had another 1.75 billion euros in sustainability linked uh, issuance added this week. Most notable was um, Italium, as uh, I'm sure uh, Caitlin touched on because of the novel approach to its step-up mechanism. And we also had DIC Asset, a German real estate financing company, and corrugated packaging company Smurfit Kappa, more towards the IG uh, end of things. But we decided to uh, take a deeper dive into um, Italian leather manufacturer Pesubio, though. Yes, Pesubio. It's becoming notorious here at Nine Fin. It's not technically sustainability linked, but it certainly deserved a, a deep dive, as far as I understand. Can you tell us why? Sure. So um, Pesubio essentially produce leather interiors for the auto industry with Porsche and Jaguar Land Rover as key clients. So another high yield name there. Being um, a, leather, uh, a leather producer, Pesubio sells uh, leather products, which are often linked to uh, deforestation um, as land is cleared to make room for cattle ranching. And uh, a major problem region uh, here is the Chacao region in Paraguay, where forested land is um, uh, often or... Uh, said to be illegally raised by local tanneries, leading to problems for wildlife cons conservation and uh, infringement of uh, indigenous rights as uh, uncontacted tribes uh, live in this part of the world. Um, and really the key point to flag here is a 2020 Earthsite report which claims that Pesubio is the world's largest consumer of uh, Paraguayan leather, purchasing an estimated 39% of, le of the leather supply per, per the report. Um, it's important to note, though, that the uh, that the company responded to the report, stating that their suppliers have assured them that they operate in accordance with Paraguayan law, emphasising that these regulations uh, are not the same as European standards. However, the Earthsight report also claims bribery and broader corruption. So, uh, 
a lot to digest there. Yeah, certainly a lot to digest there. And, and what's the commercial impact of this for Pesubio? So I think the, um, again, one kind of uh, important thing to note would probably be that the commercial impact could be felt sooner rather than later because towards the back end of last year, we had the Independent come out stating that uh, Jaguar Land Rover were conducting um, an internal review uh, on their leather supplies of the back of this report. So again, you know, with uh, JLR being a key, a key client of Pesubio's, uh, this could um, potentially prove material for the business. Now it's time for our deep discussion segment where we go a little bit more in depth into a specific topic. This week we're going to be looking at the incoming pipeline. Today I have with me our CEO Stephen Hunter. Hi Stephen. Hi Kat. And a new joiner with us. Thanks for being with us Owen Sanderson. Pleasure. So the pipeline uh, looks heavier than usual. Apparently we're going to be hitting new records in issuance. Is that right Stephen? think so. I think this is going to be a record year for European and sterling denominated high yield bonds anyway. Um, I think we're just crossing over the 100 billion point now and we're, we've still got all of Q4 to go. There's a very well flagged pipeline of M&A deals on the supply side and there's quite a lot of bonds that are trading to call as well that could be opportunistically taken out. So I think everyone's going to have a busy end to the year and it's going to be a, a record issuance year, which if you roll back to the start of the pandemic, I'm not sure many people would have predicted. What do you think it means? Is it European high yield finally growing up? I feel like I've been asking people whether it's going to do that for about five years, but maybe this is it. 2017 was the last year that um, I saw when I quickly ran the numbers earlier that was over 100 billion. So that was quite a big a big year, but the market's much bigger than it, it was 10 years ago. Um, you still have lots of new issuers coming to market that people haven't seen before, completely new credits, as well as the staple and slightly more boring credits that everyone's become accustomed to like the telcos i think we're supposed to be losing some rising stars at some point aren't we but i guess everybody would be happy to lose a few double b's and get new issue lbo supply in in exchange um the banks are going to have a bumper year that's probably the case across a lot of them i know there was a story out in bloomberg about uh, jp morgan having 30 to 40 deals or something like that um that are lined up ready to go for the coming few months the M&A pipeline for all the banks in terms of debt, which essentially has to be underwritten by a bank, is somewhere between 30 and 40 billion. So there's quite a lot still to come. So the banks, I think, are have probably quite heavy balance sheets in terms of the amount of things that they've underwritten. Uh, and we are coming into Q4 now as well. And historically, banks absolutely hit holding bridges or anything that's underwritten, especially if it's funded over their year-end period, because it's really punitive for, for capital reasons. Um, so that's going to be interesting as well to see how many deals actually rush to market in Q4 to get their deal done and over the line. All the banks will have quite full books in terms of underwritten deals as well as the more opportunistic things. So you know, around 40 billion of M&A plus I think we did the numbers and it's depending on whether you include dollar issuances of European companies, you're somewhere between 35 billion and 50 billion of bonds that are trading to their call price before the end of the year. So that's a huge amount of potential issuance. Uh, last year, obviously quite weird for, for everyone for all kinds of reasons. In terms of um, leverage credit supply, though, a particularly interesting thing was kind of how late the year ran. You know, we had the vaccine news on, I think, November the 9th and then a massive rally. And then the deals just kept on coming. You know, often markets slow down a bit after Thanksgiving. I don't think they did. I think we had, what, two, two or three more, like, pretty substantial weeks um might be misremembering that but it it ran on so i guess what i'm wondering is does that example 
you know, maybe give the banks a bit of confidence that actually the year, the functional year for doing high yield deals is going to be a little bit longer this time around. It's a great point. I, I don't remember ever before having had so many consecutive Mondays where there were multiple deals launching. You know, you're right, usually there's a bit of ebb and flow, both because it's earnings season and if you're an investor, you don't really want to be looking at 10 brand new deals whenever you've got 90 companies reporting on, on that Thursday. Uh, and then you also have you know, numbers going stale and things like that. So there's normally a little bit more of an ebb and flow, but it's been absolutely continuous throughout this year and presumably that will extend into late into December. Uh, I think August was a little bit quieter, um, but it's, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be busy and shows no signs of slowing down. And I think one of the other things that we were talking about that's driving this as well on, on the M&A side is there is a lot of M&A activity in particular regions. So the UK has been a focus area. The FTSE has trailed pretty much every other index for the last few years on the equity side. And it looks like now there are some sharp-minded private equity folks stepping in and taking advantage of, um, of some dislocation. I don't know what you think of yeah, that's certainly that's certainly been a bit of a theme. There's some visible pipeline, I think, in the shape of Greco still to come, um, McCarthy and Stone, and uh, Ara Global, um, and Morrison's, which we um, we're going to spend a bit of time on. Yeah, let's keep... talk Morrison's. I think this is this, right. this is a good example of the UK PLC piece because we already had ASDA doing a pretty monster deal earlier on in the year and. Now uh, it looks like the Issa brothers may have a little bit more time and time to give their or time and attention for that particular company, given that EG Group is slated to potentially IPO or exit. There were some rumors last week, but definitely supermarkets have been an interesting focus area, I think largely because their share prices have been depressed, but also because they have a lot of property. Mm. And I think people's eyes kind of light up when they see that big property base and the state of current weak protections and documents that gives you quite a nice angle as a private equity firm to buy an asset asset on the cheap maybe get rid of some of those assets and, and take some of your money off the table quite quickly after the deal's been done so as to a big sterling deal um, and then morrison's i think is, is is to come and will be interesting depending on who wins the bidding process mm. um i'm not really a, a commercial real estate guy at all i've dabbled in cmbs in the past but i think a, a piece of that might be that a lot of the, the CRE investors are not, not necessarily feeling offices, not necessarily feeling hotels right now, or at least you've got to be a specialist and pick your spots. Definitely not feeling shopping centres unless they're super yieldy. So what do you buy? You go buy logistics, you buy supermarkets, you buy big boxes that are going to be you know used all of the time. So that's, I guess, the, the piece missing with the, the supermarket property portfolio, in my opinion. Do you think it has any echoes as well of the kind of opco propco type thing that we had back in the day you know 2007-2008 when deals started to get a little bit punchy and people you know a lot of companies that had really strong asset bases essentially had those asset bases taken away um, mm. and replaced with leases and money taken off the table and think about some some of the companies in the care home space for example um, there were also the pubs and we've seen some of that again recently with some of the pub businesses so maybe mm. that's a recurring theme that indicates where we are in the market but um, Morrison's is definitely going to be interesting to see how it it gets structured. Um, mm. I think both the bidders have said that they weren't going to do anything too crazy in terms of selling off assets, but let's see uh, let's see how long that lasts, and I'm sure the documentation will give them plenty of flexibility if they ever change their mind. Yeah, I I think they're selling assets and they're selling assets. Then if they're sort of you know closing closing stores and dumping 
things down, that's that's a problem. That's a political problem for a, a company like Morrison's or Asda. But if you sell and lease back something for thirty years, the badges on the building don't change. No one, no one except the people in our markets knows about it. To be that's honest, that's very true. <laughs> that's very true. So you're gonna have some grumpy bond holders potentially, but politically, probably not a political problem unless something goes really badly wrong in four or five years' time down the line with those companies and they, if they end up in any kind of process, then that's probably when the politicians get into uh, get into a little bit of a scrap around, oh, these companies had too much debt put on them by evil private equity firms and look where we've ended up. Um, but let's let's see let's see how it plays out. Yeah, I think there's a bid out there. Um, all the all the Goldman guys that used to do the Tesco property finance deals, which were Tesco sell and lease back. I know we're not talking about Tesco being LVO'd yet. <laughs> um, they're all now running a thing called um, Supermarket REIT, which is a listed fund, which mm-hmm. keeps going from strength to strength, raising raising new clips, raising new debt. So, you know, them and others are out there ready to buy ready to buy some supermarket boxes. I think. Given the market is is much bigger now than it was a decade ago and that we're seeing record issuance and a very tolerant and accepting market, although there was some chat about a couple of accounts making some room for some of these bigger deals by selling some of the maybe less interesting or attractive instruments that they held. Um, talking about like, what is the art of the possible in terms mm. of a, a monster LBO deal, um, if, if M&A is back in fashion and you know, UK PLC has a for sale sign over it, um, you mentioned Tesco, is that something that would, could be or would be LBOable? Well, I'm going to steal the thoughts of uh, a friendly banker that I spoke to earlier this week and say probably not all in high yield or leveraged format. If you can get some investment grade out of it, like ideally a good chunk, um, it probably is. The investment grade market is you know, still much, much bigger, much, much deeper and uh, often actually kind of starved of decent M&A supply. And if you have a property-heavy balance sheet, then I guess the natural way to do that is uh, some kind of hard asset security like the Tesco property finance deals, for example. Um, I know this never got off the ground, but obviously Unilever was in play a few years back. I think well, that was going to be a 100 billion deal at least, and probably, again, a balance sheet that you could lever only to investment grade but still lever it up quite a bit from where Unilever is right now. It's very interesting as well to think about the kind of theoretical max size deal that you you could do. Tesco would be right on the top end of that I think given that it would probably have it probably be north of 30 billion enterprise value. Maybe you sell off some assets to reduce that and make it a little mm-hmm. bit more bearable but you also have potentially an equity problem in that it's very hard to find a fund that can write a 10 billion equity check on its own or an LBO, so you do have to go to someone like a 3G, Warren Buffett, and there are a select number of people who can write that type of a check, unless you do it as a syndicate, which I think would be much more likely. You've also got a, um, some really big sterling portions done, like the Asta sterling tranche was massive. Mm-hmm. Um, you almost certainly need the dollar market for that size of a deal, um, but it's, it's, it's not completely out of the question that it would have been a decade ago. Yeah, that's that's a great point about the equity check, and obviously that's even harder in a public to private. You know, do you want to be going around to your competitors when you're about to launch a takeover bid on the UK's biggest supermarket? Um, but yeah, there's, there'll certainly be demand for a Morrison's if it comes. It's interesting that the pro bankers or lawyers who worked on that, if you know, whenever you a P two P, public to private, um, you have to put up the financing docs for a UK company anyway, 
Mm. So we went through, you could actually see the, the, the caps on the, on the bridge facilities because they didn't redact it properly. Mm. I still don't understand why people you know, drag little black boxes over the text rather than actually <laughs> properly delete it, given the fees that are involved. <laughs> but, um, but that allowed us to see you know, what the caps rate, rates were, what the flex rates were, and they look quite sensible compared to where you know, Asda, Asda priced. Um, and uh, you know, people, are, people, I think, are very keen for those well-known, stable credits that have a strong brand. Uh, and we'll make room for them, I think, if they if they come to market. Um, just to briefly return to the art of the possible, mm. um, Asda, of course, was interesting because it's the largest largest ever sterling high yield, right? By by, I think, quite a long way. Yeah. Um, and you know, it went great. So you know, kudos to them, kudos to Barclays. Um, but a part of how that was achieved was by not giving anyone any other currency to buy. You know, you can have sterling or you can be out of this two billion deal. That's that's your choice. We'll hedge it for you, but you know, here's your sterling. So if you're putting together a capital structure where you want two billion of sterling, but you also want five billion of euros mm. and five billion of dollars, does that two billion number is that still doable? I guess that's absolutely or maybe you have um, to offer quite a lot of juice on top relative to the other, you know, euro and dollar bits that I think would probably be more popular and I would have more natural buyers and of course I suspect again a deal of that size would need would definitely need as well as the US market loans and bonds and mm. then of course in the loan market if you're doing things in sterling your demand is is pretty restrained compared to euros because basically almost none of the CLOs can do anything in, in sterling or at least a very very small amount. Looks like it's going to be a very busy rest of 2021 for buy-siders, bankers and nine-fin analysts and reporters alike. Uh, we'll certainly be keeping a close eye on the pipeline. We're coming up to the end of the podcast this week, but before you go, a little bonus info. A significant BWIC uh, went out this Tuesday of more than 140 million euros, according to sources. Tranches being sold include a 6 million clip of Refresco, a 4 million euro clip of Seva Sante Animal, a 4 million euro chunk of Memora, 5.5 million euros worth of Sebia, and 4 million euros worth of Sigma or Upfield, the flora foods business. Holding data on nine fins suggests that prime suspects holding some of these tranches include Cairn Capital, Guggenheim, and Alcentra. If you have any information on this BWIC or you have any kind of feedback or suggestions for the podcast, do feel free to reach out to us at team at ninefin.com. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. Thank you very much to Caitlin, to Alex, to Stephen and to Owen. But most of all, thank you to you, listener. Don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Music, Google and Amazon Music. And hopefully see you next time.